You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. So last week, I started a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I've titled it Kingdom Life. So this will be part two of that. And admittedly, I only got to, I think, the first beatitude. It's in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10. I promise I will get a little more done today. So anyway, let me recap a bit. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 5, verse 1 through 10. Now, this whole section is called the Sermon on the Mount. That runs from chapter 5 to chapter 7, but the first 10 verses are the Beatitudes. And I want to highlight this again. This section of scripture, these three chapters, are by far the greatest sermon ever preached for a few reasons. If we look at it pragmatically, every teaching in the Old and New Testament is combined and sort of put together in a synopsis by our Lord Jesus in these three chapters. And then I'm stating the obvious, it is preached by Jesus. This is the word of God preached by God. And let me just make a clarification. So you're thinking, okay, Jeff, does that mean that uh, epistle of Paul or, or Peter, these books are, are not of God? No, they are. They're inspired. But here's the wonderful thing about inspiration. For instance, let's say the book of John, that is God's word, but it is it is God's word through the personality of John. When you read John or Peter or James, it's God's word, but you pick up a little flavor of their personality. What's so special about this is it is God's word through God's personality. Like this is it. So the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are all that. So to recap what's going on here, Jesus is starting his ministry and he's going to the synagogues. He's preaching and teaching. He's healing people by the hundreds and words getting around. I mean, people are finding out about him and they're following him all the way to Syria. They knew about the Lord Jesus all the way on the other side of the Jordan in the barren spots. They knew about Jesus. So really what's going on here, Jesus sees all these people following him, goes about halfway up on this mountain so he can speak and starts. And again, I only got to the first beatitude last week, which is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but we'll pick it up again. So Father, I just pray even in the same way when the Lord spoke these words, it penetrated and convicted people. It brought them comfort, but also conviction. I pray the same is true today in Jesus' name. Let me read Matthew 5, 1 through 10. Uh, we'll get going. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So last week, 
I made the point that these beatitudes, or as some have called them, the blessed attitudes or the beautiful attitudes are exactly that. And I think it's interesting to note, and I said this last week, but Jesus is not explaining how to be saved. He's not talking about salvation here. Not at all, but he's showing us what it looks like to be truly saved. Salvation is by faith alone, but these beatitudes are the posture of that salvation. This is what it looks like. This is the posture of salvation. And we saw that the word blessed doesn't mean happy. As some people wrongly interpret, it doesn't mean happy. Uh, Our Lord is not talking about some subjective emotion of happiness that can change. No, when Jesus said this, he's describing how God feels about us. It is actually approval by God. When it says blessed, it means you are approved of God. A completely different thing. Now, I know that brings happiness, but we need to make that clarification. The point wasn't so we can be happy. The goal was to have the approval or the smile of God. So when we're living in, I'll say, the kingdom of God right now, we are approved by God, and that makes sense. We also learn that the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is absolutely the prerequisite for all the other beatitudes. In fact, it's a prerequisite for salvation. I'll say this, you cannot know Jesus unless you first come to know you are poor in spirit. There are no two ways about it. Poor in spirit is recognizing there's absolutely nothing you can offer to God. Zilch, zero. It is by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. And last week I also said that each one of these beatitudes builds upon the other. There's eight of them. They all build upon each other. And we'll see that in the fourth beatitude, which says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. You see, when it says blessed are the poor in spirit, that's primarily an intellectual exercise. They understand that they are spiritual beggars. It's kind of between the ears, but blessed are those who mourn That is the physical response. That's the emotional counterpart of recognizing that you're poor in spirit. I think it goes without saying, if we truly recognize our poverty, we will be stirred to that emotion of mourning, or at least we should be. The beautiful thing I think personally about the Beatitudes is exactly this. They cut through the delusion that there's some formula for Christianity. Like this one, two, three manual. If I look like this, if I say this, if I dress like this, I'm a Christian. No, this is a heart issue. And actually, it exposes, in my opinion, the heart, or let me say the shallowness of some evangelicals that can give you all the right answers. Man, they know the Bible, they can give you the right answers, but they don't know Christ. And believe me, they exist. Maybe some in the church right now. I'm not cracking, I'm just saying that is the truth. That's the absolute truth. So what does it mean to mourn? I mean, really, what does it mean to mourn? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be grim or joyless. It doesn't mean that you don't laugh. It doesn't mean that you don't have fun. It doesn't mean, and also in this way we get a little conflicted, mourning in this context isn't necessarily mourning about your difficulties in life. You see, the Bible doesn't say that mourning by itself is blessed. Case in point, 
we remember in 2 Samuel when Amnon mourned, mourned because he did not have his lust fulfilled by Tamar. That was not a blessed thing. Or Ahab, King Ahab, it says he mourned because he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard. That's not a good thing. So these are two very negative examples in the Bible of mourning, and, and they're certainly not blessed. The type of mourning that the Word of God is talking about is when we see our sin in such a way that we recognize that our souls, our deeds, our words are something that needs to be adjusted or cleaned or forgiven by God. That's mourning. But there's a wonderful effect to mourning. The great, the great part is it says that we will receive comfort, we'll receive forgiveness, and we'll also receive salvation. You see, some have misinterpreted, and I, I think this is important to just describe real quickly. In this beatitude, some have misinterpreted that they will be comforted to mean future tense in heaven, in the heavenly kingdom, that they will be comforted. That's not the case. In fact, the literal sense of Jesus' words here are this. Blessed are the mourners, for they shall be immediately comforted and shall continue to be so. Immediate and continue to be so. That's a beautiful thing. That is a gift. In fact, and I, boy, I just ran across this this week and I loved it. The Greek word used here for comforted or they shall be comforted is the same root we use for the word paraclete. Some of you know the word paraclete is used for the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, unless I leave, the comforter cannot come? It's the same word. It's absolutely, so what is that telling us? What I'm saying is if we mourn, God personally promises to comfort us with his Holy Spirit right now. God will fill you with his spirit. That's a wonderful promise. He binds our wounds. He consoles us. He comforts us. He provides for us. And to me, I, I can find no better example than that of the prodigal son. It's in, it's in Luke 15, and I'll read it, but some of you, you know this parable well, and it just shows the consolation, the comfort that the father brings us. The prodigal recognized his sinful life, his condition, and he mourned, and he wanted to be comforted by the father. Maybe some of you that don't know the story of the prodigal son, real quick, this man had two sons, one kind of a good son, one kind of a party or rebel, the rebel said, dad, give me my inheritance now. I don't, I'm not waiting until you die. I want it now. Incredibly disrespectful then, you know, even now, but it was a bad scene. So the father sells what he has, gives half to this party or son. Son goes out and parties, lives like a wild cat. He's doing everything. He is, there's nothing that he did not do. He's just living life to the full till he gets to the place where he goes, oh my gosh. This is not fulfilling to me. In fact, I've dishonored my father who I love. Now, I'm going to read you Luke 15, verse 18 through 20, and listen to what the word of God says. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is the picture of our father waiting for us to come to him. And in this story, it's not like the father. I mean, maybe it would have been me. I, I would have given my son a little what for and then hugged him. That's not the case here. The father gives him his signet ring, takes his best coat, puts it on him, goes and gets a fatted calf. He's just overjoyed. He consoles and welcomes this son that recognizes his condition. That's for you and I right now. Run to the father. Run to the Father. He will embrace you. He will give you that which you cannot obtain here in the world. We should mimic the prodigal. We should really mimic him. And we will be met by a Father who is looking for us, waiting, and will run compassionately to us. Let's go to the next beatitude. Verse 5 says this, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I got to say, of all the beatitudes... This one is the biggest paradox to me. Blessed are the meek. How do the meek inherit anything? I, I don't get it. Life just doesn't work that way. In fact, I'm guessing it's not the meek who are occupying the executive suites on Wall Street. Somehow, I don't think that's the case. I, for me, it seems like Jesus' third beatitude goes against the laws of nature and society. And... Personally, I can tell you this, maybe some of you men would agree with me. The last thing an average man wants to be known for is being meek. Oh yeah, Jeff's a good guy. He's really meek. I don't know. It just doesn't sound right to me. It just doesn't. You know, so initially I'm thinking, well, maybe Jesus made a mistake here. But then we realize that, that some of our Lord's most profound words were natural paradoxes. He said things like the first or last, giving is receiving, dying is living, losing is finding, least is greatest, poor is rich, weakness is strength, serving is ruling. So we discover that, we go, okay, there's something to this. Maybe I better investigate what meekness means. Here it is. Meekness is not weakness. It is not weakness. It's not cowardice. It's not some spinelessness. It's not timidity. And it certainly isn't having a willingness to get peace at any cost, no matter what. That is not meekness. It doesn't mean you're indecisive or you lack confidence. Meekness implies utter self-control. Meekness is self-control. It's the middle ground between excessive anger and indifference, where someone's just going off like no other and someone doesn't care. It's the perfect combination for the right situation always. And that's what our Lord was. I call it absolute strength under control. Picture a wild stallion out there running free, born in the wild. Well, when that stallion is tamed, he still retains that strength, but you can ride him. I like the term tender steel tender steel. I think that's what meekness is. And, you know, the context of this, when our Lord used this, what Jesus is alluding to is Psalm 3711, where it says, but the meek shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the land. That gives us a bit of a hint. What does he mean by meekness? If we look at that Psalm, it was written to the Israelites. 
Now, at that particular time, the Israelites lived in the land, but they did not possess it. They didn't possess it because of what evil men had done. So the Lord says, listen, trust in the Lord. Be still and wait on the Lord and he will restore your land. So here's what that tells us. Meekness is the key. It's the understanding that we're trusting in a sovereign God to work things out for us. No, God's got this. Are you willing to rest in him and let him do it? And obviously, and foremostly, Jesus displayed this meekness perfectly in the word of God in the New Testament. Uh, one example, and, and I think of one of the disciples, Peter, says this about our Lord in 1 Peter. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, our Lord Jesus trusted the Father so completely to work things out on his behalf every time. When I look at Jesus' life, I see this wonderful combination of gentleness and power all at once. When Jesus was confronted by Pilate, he remained silent. When Jesus was abandoned by his friends who betrayed him, there wasn't a harsh word from his mouth. When Peter denied the Lord, the Lord restored him to fellowship and service. And I'll tell you, this is a hard one for me, but when Judas betrayed our Lord in the garden and kissed him, you know, to show the guards, that's the one, Jesus calls him friend. Can I say that our Lord was not being insincere and he meant that? Even when he hung on the cross, he looked and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. In all this, Jesus, meek and mild, displayed total control. And can I say this? I like this, this phrase. He radiated power. Jesus radiated power. My favorite examples in John 18, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, both the temple guard and the Roman soldiers were dispatched to arrest Jesus. Now, at that time, that'd be like two different special forces units coming to arrest one guy, one made up of Jews, one made up of Romans. And they come to this meeting where Jesus' disciples are at, hanging out in the garden, and they ask Jesus, are you Jesus? Jesus said, I am he and they fell back. More accurate, they were knocked off their feet by the glory of the great I am. When Jesus said, I am, that's a tetragrammaton. That's God's name. Jesus says, I am, and these dudes are blown back. No two ways about it. Raw, powerful, divine force. You see, these, uh, these soldiers went to arrest a poor peasant but they came face to face with the Lord of glory. That's not how they thought that would go. Now, the thing is with Jesus, when it comes to matters of faith, um, when someone's welfare or spiritual well-being were, were at the forefront, he had total power and control. I remember the Pharisees rebuked our Lord for healing a man on the Sabbath. Jesus showed some anger. He was angered 
when his disciples, when he's going through Galilee, the disciples are telling the children, get out of the way, man. Just stay over there. Don't get in our way. Jesus rebuked him. Let the children come. That angered our Lord. He took, he took reeds and cords and made a whip in the temple, cleared out the money changers. That's power and control. You know, and he, he called Peter Satan when uh, Peter, our rather outspoken fisherman, was getting in the way of Jesus' heavenly mission. Jesus knew when to stand up. There knew, he, every time, no two ways about it. And all of these examples came from our gentle savior. This is a very clear example of what meekness is. I think we can now understand what meekness is. It's a gentle spirit that trusts in God, but can also stand up fearlessly when truth or someone's welfare is at stake. And I, I want everyone to know, I'm not suggesting that we can all live this meekness perfectly. Certainly I can't. And here's what I'll say, and I got to apply this to myself. If we have the attitude that our lack of gentleness or meekness is, is just the way we are and people got to get used to it, we probably need a little tune-up. We, we, need, we need a little tune-up there. And I'm the first one to say I, I need that a lot of times. But here's the reward. Look at the reward of meekness. Look what it says. They'll inherit the earth. Now, yeah, that's a paradox, but the Bible clearly talks about a time in the future where we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in this earthly kingdom. I, I, I'm, I'm a, a pre-millennialist. I think that's pre-millennial reign with Jesus. That's how I interpret that. But either way, we're going to do it. But I think there's also this sense in which if we're truly meek, we will rule now in this way or we own the earth. Because if we're trusting in the sovereign will of our Father in all areas of life, it relieves us of the tyranny of worrying about material things or what's going to happen. There's a payoff to that. We actually own the deal now, but it's getting to that spot. We're free to live our lives in accordance with what the Lord has for us, not the pull of the earth. That the world is ours if we take that posture. It's ours. I think the most effective way to grow in meekness is by following the example that Jesus gave us in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, in biblical times, the younger oxes were yoked with the older oxes to train them what they needed to do properly. So we learn by being yoked to our Lord to surrender our lives to him and let him guide us. That is how we gain a degree of meekness. We learn by doing, by following the Lord. And I think, and I'll move on, but the true test of meekness is not if we could admit we're a dirty, rotten sinner, but what do we do when someone else tells us we're a dirty, rotten sinner? Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. You know, in the physical realm, what we hunger for and thirst for, we usually eat, which brings me to the old saying that you are what you eat. 
if we're constantly eating unhealthy things, we're gonna be unhealthy, but vice versa. If we eat healthy things, we will be healthy. I do believe this applies to our spiritual lives as well. The Lord is telling us here what we should be hungry and thirsty for. But how, how do we cultivate that desire for righteousness? I think the answer, again, is in the first three Beatitudes. Remember I said they all build on each other? Listen, if we're spiritually poor and we mourn over our sin and we are meek, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the spiritual byproduct of the first three. And I want us to grasp, and this is tough in 21st century America, I want us to grasp the intensity of the expression that our Lord used to hunger and thirst. You see, if we get thirsty, we go to the tap and get some water and have a refreshing drink of water. If we're hungry, you go to the refrigerator. Done deal, right? But the first century Israelite, man, I'm telling you, those guys, this expression was terrifying. They were never far from possible dehydration or starvation. When Jesus said that, it was like, okay, that's how much we need to want that. And I think it's also important to understand, okay, what is this biblical righteousness? What is Jesus describing here? What he's not talking about is this sort of objective righteousness by merely doing good deeds. It's, it's just what we do. Although true faith, good deeds will follow that, but it's not just the good deeds alone. Our Lord is talking about a subjective or an internal righteousness that plays itself out in life by living a life that conforms to God's will. It's from the inside out, not the outside in. I love C.H. Spurgeon. I think Spurgeon, listen to this, he puts his thumb directly on what this means. Let me read what Mr. Spurgeon wrote about what real righteousness is. And again, this one hit me between the running lights pretty good. So listen, he hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He does not hunger and thirst that his own political party may get into power, but he does hunger and thirst that righteousness may be done in the land. He does not hunger and thirst that his own opinions may come to the front and that his own sect or denomination may increase in numbers and influence, but he does desire that righteousness may come to the forefront. That is real righteousness. King David describes this well, this posture of seeking righteousness. Psalm 63, one says this, this is David talking. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I really think this is what spiritual health looks like. And it's a deal, again, guys, we're constantly doing this. Even though, yes, we eat and drink, we thirst, he gives us this. We're constantly seeking this refreshment that only God can give because it is so influenced by the Holy Spirit and it's a win-win for us. And again, maybe for some of us, we read this, and this, to me, again, I got to apply this to myself first. You know, we read this fourth beatitude, and it kind of brings back the memories of a past life when we first came to Christ, you know, and, and, and man, we were constantly hungering and thirsting for his word. We couldn't get enough of Jesus, you know, and uh, we welcomed opportunities to sacrifice for others in the name of Jesus. 
But somehow, somehow, time has kind of blunted that and the realities of life have taken over and our hunger kind of ceased. It kind of ceased. Now we're content with a life of lesser devotion. It's not the same as it was. But if you're like me, we've not forgotten the warmth of that relationship. And those words of Jesus, they stir us, they ring in our ears. The Lord's calling us to be restored to what we were meant to be. If that is happening, answer the call, answer the call. Listen, we've got to look, believe this. Listen, I'm gonna read a couple of verses out of Isaiah. This is what he tells us. Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. God is talking to us today. Come, it's not gonna cost you money. He says, come to him with this empty soul and he will fill you. He'll give you the richest of foods that you cannot get in the world. Maybe some of you don't know Christ. He's saying the same thing to you. Come to him. He will fill you like nothing ever before has. And to us that have kind of let that fire dim, come. He will fire us back up. All right, this is the last one I'm going to do. Uh, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does it mean? What does it mean to show the kind of mercy that is approved by God? The kind of mercy that receives the applause of heaven? The kind of mercy that brings a smile to God's face? The Greek word translated merciful, listen to what it really means. It means to give help to the wretched, to relieve the miserable, to give help to the wretched and relieve the miserable. See, mercy is not merely this feeling of compassion. Can I say that? Listen to this. Mercy exists when something is done to alleviate distress. It's an action thing. Mercy means active goodwill, not just thinking the right thing to do, doing the right thing. And this word mercy was well understood by a 19th century pastor who came across his friend who his friend had just had his horse. It fell and it had to be put down. It died. It was a terrible thing. And a crowd of onlookers gathered around this guy with the dead horse. And, you know, they, these onlookers, they're expensive expressing kind of a, you know, an empty sympathy, just saying this or that. Well, this preacher got up in front of the crowd and looked to the loudest sympathizer and said, uh, I'm sorry about $5 worth. How much are you sorry? And he passed the cap and got money to replace the dead horse. Mercy demands action. It demands action. In this beatitude, the other side of this mercy is that it describes someone who forgives and pardons another's wrongs. Forgiving, very forgiving. Um, and I think the reason those of us that have been forgiven by the Lord can forgive others is because we recognize the degree to which we've been forgiven. And if we forget that, uh, we're gonna be operating on the wrong foundation. When we truly grasp 
the magnitude of the mercy that we've been shown, we can forgive those that wrong us. We really can. I think the evidence, if we show mercy, I believe it's evidence that we've received mercy. I wonder about the people that can't show mercy. I wonder, have you been forgiven, bro? Or is your memory that short? Um, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 6. Listen to this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Can I say that is both comforting and convicting at the same time? It's comforting, but man, that wakes me up. Wait, I won't be forgiven? You know, I believe, this is my opinion, but I believe it's true biblically, if we practice the kind of mercy that offers forgiveness, maybe in the smaller things, God will enable us to forgive others in the bigger things. But we have to start with the capacity that we have. You see, our capacity to grow in mercy is by us taking steps of faith, trusting the Lord in the most painful situations. That's an unsure place to be, and that's scary, but that increases our capacity to show mercy. I'll, I'll end with this, uh, this story, true story. Uh, I'll never forget the very first Bible study that Robin and I went, went to after, uh, after we were saved. Um, it was in the home of Bruce and Judy Bellwood in Yorba Linda, California in 1987. We were members of Yorba Linda Friends Church, remember it well. And her and I had only been saved a couple months. Um, so everything was new and wonderful, but a bit surprising about this Christianity. But, but we just, man, this is something. And I think it might have been the very first Bible study, if not the second, that Robin and I were, were at when Bruce Bellwood starts to tell the group this story of his teenage daughter who had got off work late and was making her way to her car in the parking lot. It was dark. A man grabbed her, assaulted her, brutally raped her. She was hospitalized. This was not a good thing, totally. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. But the man was arrested. The man was put in jail. Well, what did Bruce and Judy do? They frequently would visit this man in jail to tell him that they had forgiven him and that the Lord loved him. They shared the gospel with this man. Not once, twice, but almost every weekend they would go down and do that. What happened? This man was led to the Lord through their mercy. I'll say this was hard for me to understand then. How could you forgive someone that had caused so much pain to your family? How could you do that? And at the time, I just figured, well, I don't know much about Christianity, and someday I'll, I'll learn how to do that. I'll, I'll learn how to sh show that kind of mercy. Well, that was 35 years ago, and can I say, be truthful, this is still hard for me to wrap my head around this kind of compassion. It is tough, but here's when I, I know this, and I'll end with this. 
It is possible through Christ. That type of mercy is possible through Christ. We worship an incredibly merciful and compassionate God, and he will fill us with that type of compassion if we allow him to, okay? So what I'd like to do right now with the prayer team, the prayer team, please come up. And, and I'm gonna pray for us, but what I would like, what I would like is... When I initially prayed today, I prayed that the word of God would be, mo be comforting as well as convicting. And if today in any way, maybe you're hearing this and, and the spirit is saying, you know what? Maybe I do need a little adjustment. Be more merciful. I need to seek righteousness a little more. I want to be that meek person. You know, the first step would be to come up here and ask for prayer. Come up and pray for anything, but I'm saying that's my prayer. If the word of God went out and had any effect, I pray you respond by coming up. So Lord God, that's exactly what I pray. Father, it is your word and your word alone that has the power to convict and the power to comfort. So Lord, give us comfort as we go today but don't let us leave if we need to do business with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.